Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but nothing we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now, today we're going to talk about several related issues. First, we're going to hear from the UH Cancer Center about an important documentary airing on public television this evening, Cancer, the Emperor of All Maladies, a book written a few years back, and it sparked a quest to look deeper into the biology of cancer. And we're going to hear from those who fought firsthand about their story of survival. Dr. Brian Issel, Associate Director of Clinical Science and Translational Research Program at the University of Hawaii Cancer Center, along with Mary Gelleher, cancer survivor, UH Manoa graduate student. We're going to hear from them in just a minute about what their experiences are and where we can get clinical trials here in the islands. Now, after that, we're going to hear from teacher Robert Kane and senior Malu Lopez, or Lopes, sorry, from Iolani Schools, regarding a senior project that pairs students with seniors in hospice and what they learn about life from those who are nearing the end of it. And after that, we'll have what I am certainly is going to be a lively discussion with Margaret Carley. She's a nurse, attorney, and an expert about death with dignity and also otherwise known as physician-assisted suicide. And we're going to hear about her experiences with this concept and the medical implications of this here in Hawaii. Margaret's spoken nationwide about Oregon's law, and it just so happens she's on vacation and gracious enough to be with us on air and as always, for that portion of the show, we'd love to hear from you. You'll be able to join us then at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. So let's talk first with Dr. Brian Issel. You know, I know I have my DVR set. I want to watch this documentary. I read the book. I thought it was fantastic. The Emperor of All Maladies, Cancer. Tell me a little bit about your experience with this documentary. There's a lot of people who are featured that you know. These are your friends and mentors. That's right. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful documentary of the uh, one of our greatest challenges of, of the day, and that is uh, how to do something about you know, a major cause of suffering for, for so many, and that's cancer. And uh, I've been so fortunate and privileged to have actually started off in this field when, in fact, things weren't so good. Uh, we were only being able to achieve cure in about a third of all patients that came along. And then I've been part of uh, and working with some of the giants of cancer that have been featured in this documentary. Uh, I've been able to see such a, such a change so that now at the moment, two-thirds of all patients that have cancer can be cured. So what, 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 what a dramatic difference. And I've also been very, very lucky to be part of uh, new treatments through working and, and, and designing and helping uh, conduct clinical trials, and, uh, which, have, which have really been responsible for all our advances. So tell me about clinical trials. You know, a lot of times people feel like we're here in the middle of the Pacific. We don't have access to these types of things. It's only on the mainland. It doesn't come here to the islands. But that's not true. That's absolutely not true, yeah. So we're part of the physician scientists, including myself and others at the, cancer, at the University of Hawaii Cancer Center, are part of a sort of an, a national and international network where we all get together to look at all the data that have been generated through clinical trials and then design other clinical trials to advance uh, how we're going to better be able to treat our patients. 
Uh, so it's, it's this sort of network. And then what we do is we bring in these trials, which always guarantee the best possible cancer care and the opportunity to have something that's, that could be better, that we believe has a rational basis for being better. And uh, so, you know, patients don't need to leave the islands for uh, these type of state-of-the-art clinical trials and to be assured that they have uh, the, the, you know, the best care available. We, we do this. We provide these trials to all the practicing oncologists in our community and also to uh, the hospitals. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just been, uh, I just feel so fortunate in having seen such great advances in so many cancers. I mean, when I first uh, started doing this, I remember a patient you know, very vividly who a young man of about 28 years old had a young family, and we just didn't have the drugs. And, and you know, we knew that he was, it was almost guaranteed he'd be, you know, he'd pass away within about 18 months. And then with just a, one main new drug, we could see a change to now that people with the same cancer have a 90% plus chance of being cured. And we've, we've, you know, we've, we've just, and it's these sort of experiences and, and the courage of our patients and, and in the case of children and their parents that, that do this, that, that participate. They're the real heroes of all this. It's not, it's not the doctors and the scientists. It's really the patients that, that drive this. And this is happening right here, it's, UH Cancer Center, Kaka'ako. Yes, and, and through the hospitals and through the oncologists in our community. So anybody who is being treated by an oncologist, you can ask them, and they have access and or Absolutely. have probably looked at Absolutely. whether or not clinical trials would be appropriate Absolutely. given their circumstances. And they call on our help. We have a staff that go and help them put the patients, you know, make sure uh, is the patient eligible for this particular study. Because not, you know, we have 100 different clinical trials available, but, you know, there's more than 100 different types of cancer. Uh, sure. And and so and different you know different stages of cancer and so on. So it may, we may not always have the study that fits the individual patient, but we certainly can help uh, the the care providers uh, you know, determine whether the fact the patient may be eligible. And then once the patient is enrolled in the study, to actually be able to uh, help them make sure that they do the study the right way and and, and adhere to it. Yeah. So really, we've got that expertise right here. At the Cancer Center, it's connected nationally, internationally. This is where our physician scientists can directly impact the lives of people who live here in the islands and allow them to have the same resources and access to things that we thought previously were just on the mainland. Exactly, exactly. There are always going to be some very highly technical uh, treatments that may be available in a place like MD Anderson Cancer Center, Sloan Kettering, that we don't have access to at a very early stage. But we certainly, all those, uh, you know, when uh, most of the studies that are done through this, what we call the cooperative groups, we have access to. And also we try to design studies that are particularly, you know, tailored for our own patient population. Sure, we've got this multi-ethnic population. There's all these different variabilities. And that really does, that means a lot. We have the expertise right here in the islands, right down the street, Kaka'ako, available to all islands, available to oncologists island-wide. Correct. Excellent. And let's hear about a success story. Now, Mari Gallagher, uh, Gallagher, you had cancer when you were younger. You were about five at the time, and your parents chose to have you participate in a clinical trial. Tell us a little bit about what happened when you were five and if you have any memory of it. But, you know, now you're a graduate student. You're at UH Manoa. And so, really, what it, what they did worked. 
Yes. So when I was actually, I was four when I was diagnosed and I was with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And the reason they, my parents took me into the doctor, first of all, was I was just bruising everywhere. And normally when you're four, you have a lot of energy, you're running around a lot, but I was taking longer, longer naps. And my grandmother also noticed that it just wasn't normal. So they finally took me in, ran some blood tests and found out that I had leukemia at that point. Well, my parents were really strong supporters of the cancer center then and they still are now and chose to um, opt in for the clinical trial through the UH Cancer Center. And from there, I was cancer-free within a few months and then I was in remission within two and a half years of my treatment. And how long ago was that? Yes, I'm sneakily asking how old you are. Well, I'm 22 now. I'm turning 23 this year. So it was 18 years ago. I just passed my 18th cancer anniversary just a week and a half ago. And so once you enrolled in the clinical trial, you became cancer-free in remission shortly thereafter. Clinical trials saved your life. They absolutely did. And I really believe in what the UH Cancer Center does. And I mean, like Dr. Issel was mentioning, all of the work that's done right here in Kakaako. A lot of people don't think that it happens here in Hawaii, but... You're living proof it does. Exactly, exactly. And I think this documentary, Cancer, the Emperor of All Maladies, it tells the story of a few individuals with their battle with cancer. And in the preview alone of it, it shows the story and the journey of these two young girls. And they were right around the same age as me when I was diagnosed, um... And it shows not only their journey as cancer patients, but the family's journey and the entire medical team that was fighting just to save these little girls and do anything in their power, just to figure out different ways to really not just cure the cancer, but help them just live a better life. And I think that's really the mission of the UH Cancer Center as well. And certainly something that you saw firsthand, Dr. Issel, you're still working at the Cancer Center and trying to bring that level of expertise to people here in the islands. Again, amazing work that's going on right down the road from us. And thanks for telling us about what's happening and also sharing your story. Mari, that's incredible. You know, here you are going to be a communications major. Actually, you're doing your graduate work in communications. Uh, Your job is to get the word out on how amazing (laughs) this opportunity is right here locally at home. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. No, it really wasn't. And I think for those people who are really interested in understanding more about these clinical trials, you can visit um, the Cancer Center's new webpage. It's www.uhcancercenter.org. And then you click on Patients and Families and then Find a Clinical Trial. And you can and it's that simple. You can see them <laughs> yes. from the privacy of your own home, see what's going on. Yeah, and you can choose the different type of cancer, the different phases that the cancer is in, and then you click search. And it's just that easy to see the different options available through these clinical trials. And as Dr. Issa mentioned, it's the top-of-the-line medications that are out for these patients. And I think it's it's quite a wonderful thing that's going on. Absolutely. The latest and greatest, if you want to know if someone you love has a cancer that that you're concerned about them, you know what, this is a great place to get more information. And I appreciate all the hard work, Dr. Issel, that you do. And Mari, I look forward to hearing from you in the future about how instrumental the Cancer Center has been in your life. But also, you know, this documentary is on tonight. I set my DVR yesterday because it's going to be about six hours. I think it's three nights two hours each night. And it really, the book was amazing. When I read it, it just really struck a chord. And the way that they did this documentary just, it brings it home. It really certainly 
it brings you right back into the center of it so that you care about what's going on because you become so entrenched in the lives of the people that were willing to share that experience on a global scale. I mean, talk about reality TV. That's That's got to be a really difficult thing to do. Now, speaking of of people who are doing things to try and help the community, my next guest, Robert Kane, is a teacher at Iolani Schools. You also read Emperor of All Maladies. When you came in, you said, I love that book. There's a documentary. There is, and it's tonight. Get home at nine. You have to watch this. But he's teaching at Iolani and teaching about hospice. And I want to hear from you about what your program is about. And then we have one of your students, Malu, who's on, and she's going to tell us about what she learned. So how long has this program been in existence, and, and what is the goal of trying to help senior senior high school students learn about hospice? Well, <clears throat> the, uh, the program's been around uh, from the mainland about 20 years or so and came here to Iolani um, as of August this year. So it's new at Iolani. And I can frame it, I think, best by saying that, uh, you know, my mom was a nurse for almost 40 years. And uh, one of the things that she used to tell us um, was that you, uh, you learn most from the dying, that the dying are our greatest teachers. And um, I got to a point uh, in my life where I started to wonder, well, if the dying are our greatest teachers, where are they in the education system? Very and, good point. Yeah. And so... Um, I was uh, had the opportunity um, back in upstate New York to to begin a program with a group of students who were uh, quite needy and um, uh, had a lot of learning disabilities, situations like that, learning style differences, and uh, felt pretty low about themselves. And uh, we entered into the world of the dying and the uh, talking of story and touching one another in those ways that a caregiver does with the dying. And um, it just became readily apparent that uh, this was something that, um, I don't know why it hasn't been done long ago. It needed to happen. Yeah, but in fact, it was happening long ago. And somewhere along the line, we medicalized and pathologized something that needs to be naturalized. Death isn't a a separate chapter uh, beyond what we call life. It's part of life. So we invite it in, and we... uh, we, we accept it as part of everything that there is in our life. It's a process. We're living while dying, I think, as Joan Halifax says. And um, so the program uh, is now developing here. We have 17 students to start with, uh, wonderful participation with all the hospice agencies here and the hospitals. Um, it's, just, it's just been a, a wonderful um, uh, welcoming here for, for this course, and I'm just very pleased. Well, now let's hear from Malu Lopes. You've actually participated in the course. You're a senior mm-hmm. at Iolani. And tell us what your interaction was with hospice and what you learned the most from it. Well, just a little background. Um, my great-grandma passed away in May from cancer and just not being in the best health. And I guess because I have such a, a large family, that comes along with having a lot of losses so death has been in my existence like as I've grown up I've experienced a lot of death so it wasn't something weird to me I guess from the beginning to talk about unusual to be honest is that right here you are you know 18 and most of us are scared of it and yet you're like head on hey this has happened I know about it I'm not scared of it um yeah so the like as I was growing up, death was never really hidden from me. Um, 
my first experience of death was losing my three chickens when I was three. And I guess it's evolved, obviously. I just lost my great-grandmas in the past few years, a couple uncles, um, majority of which are from cancer. But it's just a normal thing, I guess. So taking this class wasn't that big of a deal to me. But over the course of taking this course, I've learned so much more than I thought I would. What's the biggest thing that surprised you? I mean, for you coming from a background where you were more familiar with death and dying than a lot of other people that that might be of your same age group or cohort, what do you think surprised you the most? I think one of the things, one of the littler things that I learned was that not only old people die, which is hard because even though majority of the people that we work with in hospice, <clears throat> they might be older, but then there's some that they're you know, younger. There's could children be younger, that are dying. Sure. Oh, that's that's. Um, and as yeah, a high school student, to know that there's kids dying before they even get to experience life, I think that's kind of hard to know. Sure. But we also learn about how to cope with things. And people think like, oh, it must be such a hard class, but it's a hard class for the wrong reasons. Mm. Just because it's not something that we talk about in everyday life. People don't understand what it means to die. And we kind of cushion it, I guess. So people say, oh, my grandma passed away. When in actuality, my grandma died. And just because she's not here anymore, it doesn't necessarily mean that I've lost contact with her. And I've kind of been able to understand my priorities and be able to realize that there's things more important than what we think about on a day-to-day day basis. And I think that this hospice class has been able to not only help me appreciate my own life, but appreciate the people's lives around me and kind of minimize the fact that we are very different from each other, but we all are born and die. It might be at different times in our lives. It might be in a different way than each other, but we all go through life just like one another. And I think just being able to understand that we all have our own struggles and our own stories, it doesn't matter, like... My mom and dad have done a great job with teaching me that I should never judge people because of the things that they've done in the past or what's happened to them in the past. And I think that being able to hear the stories from the hospice patients and being able to understand what kind of life struggles they've actually gone through, it really helps me understand that my life isn't that hard and it's not as hard as I make it out to be a lot of times. And it's just about the connection that we make with people. It's not about talking to them just because they're sitting there and there's nothing else to do it's about talking to them because you want to know who they are as a person they're not just some cancer patient that's dying and i have to be here to spend time with them because no one else won't it's because i want to learn who they are and hear their stories what an incredible experience i just can't even imagine being your age and being tasked with that level of responsibility and Yet it's a gift, and the knowledge that you've learned this year mm -hmm. is something you'll never forget. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you're going to take it with you as you graduate and yep. as you go on in school. Mm -hmm. This is going to be something that, you know, I hope to hear from you in the future about some of the things that you've learned and also about how you can teach the rest of us. You know, 
your your teacher, Robert Kane, brought it to you, but now the responsibility is upon you to help share that with some of your some of your classmates, and hopefully not on a personal level, but as as you mentioned, sometimes family members do die, and they will be enriched by your experience. So thank you for coming on. It's it's mm-hmm. a hard, difficult thing, but thanks for sharing mm-hmm. your experience with us. We've had. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We've had a great first. 20 minutes of The Body Show. We've had Dr. Brian Issel on from the UH Cancer Center. We've heard from Mari Gallagher about her experience as a, stu- as a child in clinical trials. Robert Kane, who brought this program to Iolani. And then Malu Lopes, who really was touched personally from this. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Dr. Margaret Carley. And she is a nurse, attorney, and expert in Oregon's Death with Dignity laws. So we'll be right back after this quick break. You can join us, 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Just have a quick break. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hotels have hundreds of pieces of art and pictures on their walls, but where do they get it all? All the items are digitized, so you can make them whatever color you want, you can make them whatever size you want, you can print on anything you want. I'm Kai Rizdahl. Another installment of our series, I've Always Wondered, next time on Marketplace. We'll have the rest of the day's business news and the numbers from Wall Street as well. It's from APM. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. I begin to unreal at miraculous speeds. The weaving comes so naturally to me that I am barely aware I am doing it, humming as if in a dream. This is B.D. Wong, this week on Selected Shorts, Spinning for Your Life, from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m., following Travel with Rick Steves. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ferraro Choi, and Ulupono Initiative. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Boy, we had a heavy discussion just for the last 20 minutes or so, and now we're going to continue along those same lines. Margaret Carley is a wonderful woman who has given up part of her vacation to join us. She is an advocate and an expert in death with dignity. She is a nurse. She is also an attorney and has given talks nationwide about this important topic as it has touched her directly. Now, we're going to be talking about this for the next rest of our show. And if you have a thought or have some concerns or if you have a strong feeling about what this means, you are always welcome to join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Margaret Carley, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks for coming here on your vacation. We just had a wonderful discussion from Malu Lopes. Boy, that was very touching. Her experience with children who, who aren't doing well and dying. And boy, we heard from Robert Kane, and we heard from Murray Gallagher, and we've heard from Dr. Brian Issel. And it's all kind of talking a little bit about the same topic. When someone has cancer or any other sort of terminal illness and hospice is involved, there are so many wonderful things that hospice can do. They can help someone go through the process. They can help them be comfortable. They can really be supportive for family 
and loved ones and the person going through it. But there are some things that currently here in Hawaii we do not do. And in other states, they do this a little differently. Tell me a little bit about your experience in Oregon and what death with dignity really means. I'd be happy to, Kathy. Um, I wanted to mention today we all go through life um, touched by death. And my mother-in-law died this morning. She has oh, um, dementia and uh, died of infection. And uh, three years ago, my mom died of brain and lung cancer um, with hospice care. So we were all touched by death um, regularly. Um, currently, I have a friend who uh, has a terminal illness and is considering using Oregon's physician-assisted suicide law. And I have been involved in um, discussions with her about her options um, under the act. So I want to tell you a little bit about what Oregon does and how it can work if you choose the option of physician-assisted suicide in Oregon. Uh, it was in, uh, initially enacted by a um, referendum through the voters, uh, and there was subsequent um, uh, litigation, and then there was an effort to repeal the legislation, and finally it was adopted and all of the cases stopped. What the statute allows is for a terminally ill adult to request a prescription for a self-administered lethal medication. The statute prohibits euthanasia, which is illegal in all 50 states. It allows uh, physician-assisted suicide or death with dignity, as it's called, and it also states that ending life uh, in accordance with this act is not suicide nor assisted suicide under the act, despite the common use of the term physician-assisted suicide. Um, you need to be an Oregon resident, just like you would for any other purposes. You have to have either a driver's license or own a house. Uh, you have to be 18 years of old, so no children can elect this as an option. You have to be a capable adult. And by that, you have to be able to understand and communicate your health care decisions. No one else can decide for you, not another family member, not a surrogate decision maker, not somebody with a power of for attorney for health care. It has to be you deciding for yourself. Uh, you need to have a terminal illness, which is defined similar to the hospice definition, six months or less to live. And the request has to be voluntary. There can't be any coercion involved. And if the physician or the consulting physician believes that the patient's judgment is impaired by a psychiatric or psychological disorder, then there's a requirement of a referral for a psychiatric or psychological evaluation to make sure that the decision is voluntary and um, the person understands the choices that are being made. So that's the law. Now, you made a, a specific point I just want to review. You said self-administer. Years ago, you know, there's sort of a name that gets bantered back and forth, Jack Kevorkian, and he was, he was assisting people, and there was a thought about whether or not this was something that was um, considered euthanasia. Was he administering medicine? What was his role in this? And, in fact, the poor man went to jail, actually, for several years and was released and has, has passed on. But... You made a point of self-administer. So that really means that this is not some type of intravenous treatment. This is not um, anything where someone would need to be in a medical setting. This is self-administered, meaning some type of pill or something along those lines. That is correct. Okay. And the physician writes a prescription for an oral medication 
Uh, it is almost uh, always, although there are some instances it's taken in a healthcare setting, but 90% of all of the deaths that have occurred under the Act have been in the person's own home. The timing of when they elect to take the medication is their own timing, um, and a certain number of them die before they can do it or decide not to use the medication. So once they have the prescription, they elect the date and time with which they would like to use it. So this is them. They can get the prescription and how and when they choose to use it is really still under their control. That is correct. Okay. Now, we have a lot to talk about with this, but we do have a couple of people on the line that I'd love to hear their thoughts from what we've said so far. We've got Larry from Hawaii Island. Larry, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. Um, my father died under hospice care five years ago. Um, I wanted to thank Malu for her tears. It was that human feeling and compassion that made it important uh, outside of the clinical environment. You're absolutely yeah. right. And it, she was, was so a, touched. I mean, we sat here in the studio, and she really just expressed true emotion just just sharing her experience, absolutely. So thank you for recognizing that. Uh, you're welcome. And it, it was the best part of participating in the program. I'm glad they're training them to continue that. One of the uh, issues that I had, <clears throat> this was in California, and they left us medication, prescription, you know, prescribed medication. And it was... Um, you know, fentanyl patches with the skull and crossbones, you know, only for, you know, terminal cancer patients kind of thing. And it was made very clear to us that if my father chose, they would not ask questions after he passed away. And I'm very glad my father did not use that option. He passed away naturally. But it was clear that that was an option. And I'm wondering if that's still how it works. Well, it's an interesting question. Now, Larry, just to clarify, your father, unfortunately, passed away five years ago. He was in California at the time. Yes. Okay. So what it sounds like you're telling me is he was kind of given a prescription and told, hey, if you want to use it, we're not going to say anything. Here are these patches. Here's what you do. So Exactly. It was, and okay. he fit many of the qualifications your guest just mentioned. He was cognizant. He was, um, you know, all there. Uh, his wife was uh, there to consult, so it would have been self-administered. Well, and it sounds like, you know, what it sounds like happened is that the hospice was kind of saying, here's what you could do. We won't ask any questions because if we were to ask questions, we'd have to answer those. And yet it sounds like what's going on in Oregon is they said, don't even worry about questions. We are going to legalize this. You don't even have to hide it. You don't have to kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, say this is what you would do with the medicine if you wanted to. That They're kind of out in the open saying, hey, listen, you meet these criteria. This is something that we want to provide as an option for you, and this is totally your choice. And so, I, I think it's better if it's clearly stated. Um, absolutely. It, it, to be honest, I'm, again, I'm glad he decided not to take the option. And he passed away fairly quickly, anyhow. But uh, it, it was a good option to have. Well, and that's kind of what we're talking about today, Larry, is, you know, right now there is not a legalized option. If you were to come to see me in my office and say, Dr. Kozak, I have got terminal cancer, six, month le six months or less left to live. Um, you know, I... I am fully cognizant of what I'm doing, saying, asking for, et cetera. I want a prescription. 
I'm not legally allowed to do that. And so that's kind of where we're talking about are we are we providing this option as sort of an underground kind of thing that people could do if they're involved in hospice or should we just shine a light on it and say this is what people are doing why not just accept it acknowledge it and then decide how we want to incorporate this choice for individuals now i'm curious larry you said you're glad that your father didn't choose it why is that well uh, on a practical basis uh, the question of why we had a box full of fentanyl patches didn't come up or why i would have put 10 of them on him it's possible some prosecutor could have taken that the wrong way. Um, and on a emotional, moral level, um, I didn't have to pull the trigger kind of thing. He passed away naturally, and he made the decision himself. Well, and that's very important, and I think also you mentioned the patches you would be putting on him, and so you were certainly a little leery of doing so. Um, but but it's I'm glad that you feel most comfortable with the choice he made. And hopefully he passed away naturally and peacefully, and this was not something that was causing him any undue pain, and hopefully you were there to support him towards the end. So it's a very important discussion to have, and I, I'm I'm so glad you respect his choice, Larry, and I appreciate you calling and sharing your experience with us because that's really what this is about. It's about people's individualized experience, and when we look at this, as 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 individuals ourselves, for our loved ones and our families, it takes a little bit of the legal aspect out of it, and it says, what would we do for our mom, our dad, our brother, our sister, our loved one, our partner, ourselves? And that's really what you described. So I want to thank you for sharing that with us, Larry. And, and I do want to say I would have gone with his decision, whatever it was. And I bet he knows that, and, and that in itself knowing that he made the choice and you were ready and willing to respect it says a lot. And so I really appreciate you sharing that experience because to be open and shine a light on this is really what we want to discuss today. So thanks so much for sharing. Absolutely. Kathy, I wanted to let you know that one of the things also about the statute is that if you're a physician or the consulting physician or the psychiatrist and you follow the law, it gives you statutory immunity. So no one could sue you as the prescribing physician under the act for um, writing a prescription for a dose that could kill some, a person. So that is, that's one thing that, um, that the physicians and the prescribers, as opposed to either trying to interpret case law about whether I have the authority, the statute explicitly says if you follow the provisions of the act, you're immune uh, exactly. for prescribing in accordance with the act. Well, and that's another important thing because that's not something that we have the ability to do here. And and that's some you know some people think very strongly on that. And I think really we are a nation of choice and giving people options and choices is what I hope we're able to do. You don't have to choose it. You don't have to agree to it. You don't have to even ask for it. If it's an option and you get to pick and you feel comfortable with your own decision, that to me is really truly patient-centered care. We talk about patient-centered medical home and p- people being allowed to make their own medical decisions. This is really, this is the crux of it. 
This is when it happens. It's also possible that if you're a health care provider, a hospital or a um, group of hospitals, you can say, I don't want this to occur on my setting or on my premises. So as an individual practitioner, a doctor, a, psych- a psychologist, a, even a prescribing pharmacist, you don't have to participate. And also as a healthcare care setting, if you don't wish it to occur in your setting, you can say, I don't wish it to occur here. You could prohibit it on your premises, and you can also sanction a healthcare provider you have on your staff who engages in it. So it's a choice. It's a conscious decision. If you don't want it to occur on uh, in your healthcare facility uh, with your practice, you can decide uh, not to participate in the act. So it's really double choice. People can choose if they want to. Physicians, pharmacists, psychologists can choose if they want to participate. It's really opening up that choice to everybody. That's correct. Okay. We've got a caller on the line. We've got Malachi from Kahala. Malachi, welcome to The Body Show. Hello. Great topic. It really needs to be discussed. Um, Well, I was in Maine. Uh, I'm a retired uh, nurse and worked in palliative care, among other places. So I was in Maine for over two months with my brother, who had uh, pancreatic cancer for over six months. He was given a couple of months when he was diagnosed. He was still alive. He had lost 85 pounds, under 100 pounds. A lot of, we had a great hospice nurse. She was so skilled personally and clinically. But his um, symptoms really were not well controlled. And uh, he asked about getting some drugs to end it. No, 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 not in Maine. And the most they could offer was a palliative sedation, which is you put down and you die of dehydration. Now, you mentioned his true. his symptoms weren't well controlled. What symptoms would you be referring to? Oh, pain, nausea, diarrhea, constipation with the opiates. Uh, okay. Yeah, pain pain was severe. And uh, anyway, so um, I guess a couple of points. One is uh, some people say uh, if people had adequate hospice care, you wouldn't need this. Well, that just isn't true for a lot of people. Uh, so that's one thing. And the other thing is his palliative sedation. Uh, it's, uh, you know, there was roadblocks put up. It was like, well, we don't do that, but we'll send you to another doctor. Then we have to find a facility. We don't know if insurance would cover it. So there's a great amount of discomfort with uh, death with dignity. Okay, point two. I think we should just stop using the term suicide and euthanasia. You know, suicide is a choice between life and death, and normally we think it's a pathological choice to choose death. We try to prevent it. We try to stop it. Whereas death with dignity is a choice of when you're going to die and how you're going to die. You are going to die in six months, so it's it's not suicide. And the other part is euthanasia is a uh, uh, mercy killing, which uh, also seems to be you know, morally and emotionally a hot-button term. So one more thing, and this is really important, I think, to this uh, discussion, is that uh, Compassion and Choices, which I'm sure you're aware of, they're a nationwide organization started in Oregon uh, with Barbara Coombs. Uh, The JD, the lawyer for that, uh, Catherine Turner, came to Hawaii a few years ago and she said there's a constellation of laws, is the term she used, including the Medical Practice Act that was amended in 1909 to include the provision that uh, you can uh, give any remedy whatsoever to a dying person, and you can't stop someone from doing it. And there's no, um, uh, you know, hom- hom- <clears throat> excuse me, manslaughter or homicide uh, liability, along with some other ones. 
And I'm, I'm sure you're aware of it, but there is a Physician Advisory Council for Aid and Dying in Hawaii. Dr. Nathanson and Dr. Miller started it. I'm not sure if they're still involved. And it's to uh, give consultations. You know. Well, it sounds like, Malachi, you have some a little bit of reception issues, but I appreciate you bringing up those questions. And certainly we do need to come up with a better word for it. Even death with dignity would suggest that if you die without having this process, it's undignified, you know. So I think we've got to come up with a better word as as a society. But but certainly it sounds like this is something that you feel actually is more legal than not here in Hawaii, although certainly there could be some ramifications on the other side. And I know that I've heard from people who don't feel as though there is as much indemnification of participating in such programs. So so there are some there are some concerns and there's still a lot of questions out there. And so you know, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Margaret Carley. She is a nurse, attorney, and expert in death with dignity. And when we come back after this quick break, we're going to talk a little bit more about her experience with this in Oregon and when she travels nationwide and gives talks to people throughout the mainland, what are the big questions that they have? What sort of things do people ask her? And what are some of the answers that she knows from her perspective, and how can that help people here as well? So you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Gwen Palaji, HPR's Listener Events Coordinator, and I have the best job at the station, creating special gatherings for our members. We've dined farm-to-table, gone to a fish auction, attended lectures and pre-show dinners. If you'd like to join in the fun, become a member today. You'll be doing all your fellow listeners a favor by lowering the pledge goal and possibly shortening the on-air drive. And you'll be doing the right thing by supporting HPR. It's your call. On New Letters on the Air, Alice Fryman reads from her poetry books, including her 2014 collection, The View from Saturn, and talks about the importance of both craft and vision in art. I mean, you can teach anyone how to draw. You can. I can teach anyone how to write a poem, but I can't teach somebody how to see. The Views and Poetry of Alice Fryman on the next New Letters on the Air. Tuesday evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Margaret Carley. She is a nurse, attorney, and expert in death with dignity. And before the break, we were hearing from Malakai from Honolulu, telling us a little bit about his experience and and things that he knows about the limits of what hospice can and sometimes can't do to help those who are suffering. Margaret, tell me a little bit. You've you've had what sixteen more years of experience. I'm reading your notes. Sixteen years of experience. That's as long as I've been here in the island. So. What are some of the things that you have noticed as you've gone and been a speaker throughout throughout the mainland? What have you noticed that people have been most surprised about? Or what are their biggest concerns that you know are not necessarily things that have actually occurred as this act has been in place in Oregon? 
I wanted to tell you a little bit about the patients who elect this. Sure. Um, as part of the statute, the other interesting thing about it is that the health division is required to collect data annually and then to publish the data about who, um, uh, not the names of the people, obviously, but the characteristics of the patients who elected, um, the information about the physicians who prescribe, and then they match who got a prescription to the death records to see if people actually died of the information. And from this collected statistical information, we have a lot of information, not only the number of people that have used it. So for 16 years of experience, we've had 752 people who've actually taken uh, a lethal dose, self-administered. Of those, about 53% were male, so slightly more men than women elect to use the option. Of those, about 50% were married. 46% were married at the time that they elected. Um, 72% are college educated. And uh, 90% of the persons who elected it were enrolled in hospice. Oregon is very lucky. We have a lot of hospice agencies, and we have a high rate of hospice use. And some people are concerned that people without insurance uh, would elect the option or that insurance would force the option. Uh, what we know is that 98% of the people had health care insurance. Um, and the median age of the persons who died was 71 years old. So it tends to be older. The primary diagnosis um, that people elected is um, cancers, um, followed by things like Lou Gehrig's disease and then some other illnesses. But primarily the largest pet percentage of people who use the act are um, have cancer-related diagnoses. So that's a lot of the statistics about who has, who has used this act to actually do something if they wanted to end their life using the medication. You mentioned about 700 and some prescriptions were utilized. Do you know how many were given? I do. And uh, there were, um, and this is from the act to um, currently, let me just, uh, there have been um, in 2004, there was 154 prescriptions, and 107 were used. About 50 people annually never, either they die before they can use the prescription, or they elect not to use it. They have it on the shelf. They could decide to use it, but they elect to die naturally, similar to, I think it was Larry, your caller, um, earlier on. Um, since the beginning, since 1997, we've had 1,320 seven prescriptions and 859 deaths. It's about 0.001% of death. It's a really small number. And that's one of the things that people said was that you would have this, um, la this uh, landslide of people or you were opening up the gates and that once you started on the slippery slope of um, – death with dignity, that you'd have huge numbers. Or and these aren't huge numbers. These aren't huge okay. numbers. These are a very small, very small percentage of people of all of the deaths uh, in Oregon. And uh, we haven't seen people move to Oregon, with the exception recently of um, Brittany, who you mentioned earlier, who moved from California to Oregon, a younger cancer um, person who uh, had an incurable brain cancer and elected to move, in part because you need to be six months terminally ill, and there's not a lot of people at that level of illness who can elect to move uh, to a different location and uh, change uh, what they do. Uh, we've also had concerns that vulnerable populations, either the disabled or younger 
Um, persons um, may be coerced into using it, and I talked about some of the safeguards in terms of it has to be an adult, they have to be capable, um, or that someone who is depressed um, could elect to use the act. And again, we have the safeguard of requiring um, a psychiatric or psychological evaluation if either the uh, initial physician or consulting physician believes that the person is depressed. So a lot of safeguards in place and interesting statistics on who who takes advantage of this possibility and and who those people are. Because you're right, uh, the big fear that it's opening up the floodgates is probably not the case if 0.1% of people really, of all the deaths, were involved with this. So let's get, let's get to a few callers. We've got Michelle on the line from Kaneohe. Michelle, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you for taking my call. Appreciate it. What can we do for you? Well, I just wanted to share with you just briefly, you know, what, here in Hawaii, you know, of course, we don't have the um, death with dignity, quote, unquote, option. But, you know, it, it's a real, real hard thing, you know, when, when you've got to, uh, my, my husband passed away about three and a half years ago. And he had a mild heart attack, a couple of strokes, fell in the hospital and cracked his hip, and it was pretty much downhill from there. And um, I was asked, you know, well, what are you, what are you going to do if he has a massive, um, you know, goes into cardiac arrest? What do you want to do? And I went, whoa, hold on, you know, he's he's still lucid, he's still pretty much okay. Uh, I need to ask him. We had both had advanced directives that said, "Hey, you know, if you, if I code, I go." And I, you know, I did call him, and I, and you know, while he was in the hospital, and said, "You know, what do you, what do you want me to do here?" And I said, "You know, I need to know that you haven't changed your mind." And indeed, you know, he said, "Hey, look, let me go. This is important." And the other thing was that I was at one point a hospice volunteer, so I have had the privilege and benefit of having been able to provide service as a hospice volunteer and then also receive those services and see the full spectrum of the psychological help, the physical support, just everything that hospice has to offer. Well, and you're right, Michelle, there really is a lot that hospice has provided and and amazing that you were able to become a hospice volunteer as well. So, you know, you brought up a couple of good points. And one of the things that this is a little different, and I think, Margaret, you can also clarify a bit, is that what we're talking about, death with dignity, in this sort of a situation it's a little different than advanced directives or than, you know, we have this physician order for life-sustaining treatment. Those are forms that if someone were to have their heart stop or their breathing stop or be in a situation where their medical condition would not improve, then they would allow nature to take its course. And this is a slightly different sort of a situation where people are doing something a little bit more, shall we call it, proactive. Yes. Uh, the... Um it is important that everyone has a power of attorney for health care and that you can appoint someone to make decisions if you can't. 
And also you could use the PULSE program for indicating your preferences for resuscitation or um, other treatments. But the Death with Dignity statute is actually about ending your life by taking a medication uh, which would cause you to, um, to your heart to stop and, your, um, and you to stop breathing. So, And that's when those other documents might come into play, but this is sort of a step before that. So it's related, but it's sort of a little bit more of a different, a different situation. Yeah, and the main reasons that people have elected uh, to uh, get a prescription are the first is that they feel like they're losing autonomy that they don't have control over what's happening to them and what's happening to their body. Um, The second reason is that they're less able to engage in activities they enjoy. Uh, The third is that they're losing control of their bodily functions. We mentioned that um, uh, one of the other callers, the one from Maine, that his um, brother was having problems um, with um, his um, eating and drinking and his elimination and nausea and vomiting. Yeah. the, the next reason is that people don't want to be a burden on their family and friends. Um, and the, the fifth reason is really concerns about pain and pain management. And even though we've done a wonderful job improving the quality of pain management, we continue to have more work in that area. Um, this act is not about administering um, uh, excess of pain medications in order to achieve death. Instead, it's generally other medications where the death is much quicker um, than it would be uh, through the use of um, excess doses of pain medications. All right. We have time for some real quick comments. We've got Richard on the line from Honolulu. Richard, welcome to The Body Show. Hello, doctors. Yeah, I'm calling, and I've really put a lot of thought into this for, for, for many years, but I'm calling in strong opposition to uh, you know what? How do you want to call it? Uh, a death with dignity. Sure, Richard. And yeah. I'm curious because I'd love to. You know, we've heard so far from people who are for it. Right. I, I'm happy to hear that somebody yeah. has a differing it, opinion. And tell me why. Yeah, for each point that Dr. Carley mentioned, there there is another side. Uh, uh, a burden to the family. People don't want to be a burden. Well, that goes the other way too. If say I was dying, and I and I felt like I'm being a burden to my family. Um. I might decide, you know, to kill myself for that reason. But if I was the one of the survivors, I would have to think, gee, mom or dad, maybe they're making the decision because they don't want to be a burden to me. And that would be an awful place to put yourself in, to, to think that or your loved one chose this option just because they didn't want to be a burden. And, you know, we can be burdens for all kinds of reasons. We don't have a job. Uh, we break our leg, you know. The other things you said about, you know, uh, losing control of your bodily functions. I mean, we didn't have control when we were babies. You know, for each one of these points, and my fear is that no matter how well you write a law, there are always problems in application and use, just like we thought we had really good laws when it comes to capital punishment. You know, we have this wonderful legal system. Nobody's going to get executed accidentally. And, of course, we know that we have many innocent people, you know, through our, our history. So, Richard, so, your you know, thought is for each one of the reasons people would choose it, you feel like that is not really an adequate reason to give this as an option? Yeah, because there are, you know, just you can make a good, strong argument each one, each one of those points. And I understand, I, I, my dad lived till 96, you know, he died naturally, and I hate to think that, gee, in those last few years, I would go, gee, Dad, you want, you, maybe you want to consider killing yourself, you know? 
before well, Richard, you die. Well, Richard, on the other hand, you know, and, and I think you can see both sides of this issue. Do you think people should have a choice? In this case, no. Okay. I do not. I, I think, you know, it should come naturally. And the effort should go into uh, palliative care, counseling, and treatment. And, you know, for we've done well for a million years dying naturally. And, and this opens up, it does bother me, the coercion, the floodgates. Uh, I've talked to other doctors about this. And uh, so, yeah, that's my comment. It, it's, it's, it is a slippery slope. I know Dr. Carly was saying they've tried to address each one of these points. But I think those points are very valid. and It could be very dangerous. Well, and respectfully, you are absolutely entitled to your own opinion. You know, and I think a lot of people feel the way that you do. And so, you know, my thought is giving people an option and a choice to make that decision or not make that decision would be something we should look at. But, you know, certainly I understand your position, and and you're right. That's why it hasn't gone nationwide yet. And yet other nations have, Canada just decided this is something that they would be allowing to happen. So, you know, certainly a lot of information that goes both ways. But I respect your opinion, and I appreciate you strongly standing behind it, just as I appreciate Margaret standing behind hers. Now, we have time for one quick comment from a caller. We have somebody patiently waiting. I can't believe the hour's gone by, Margaret. We have Joanne from Honolulu. Joanne, we've got about 30, 45 seconds to hear from you. What can we do for you? Joanne, are you there? Oh, I think we might have lost... Joanne. Okay. So we'll try and see if maybe we'll have to do this again at some point um, and discuss it again. But Margaret, I mean, Richard has a point. He he has a differing opinion. Should people with a differing opinion um, change the fact that we could have choice? Well, it's going to be up to the people of Hawaii and to your legislature about whether this is an option you want to have uh, for those who are dying in Hawaii. And there are lots of viewpoints in terms of people who are for and against it. And um, it's going to be something where you decide as a state that this is something you will allow or you decide as a state that it's something that you won't allow. If you do decide to allow it, it's nice if you write it in such a way as there's some protections, both for the physicians and for the patients, and um, that the choice is honored uh, if they decide for it. So let's let's bring it home. Let's make it personal. Let's put you on the spot, Margaret. Okay. If you met all of those criteria, if you met the the criteria of not being alive more than six months and all those other criteria, would you want to have the choice? Uh, personally, I would like to have the choice, yes. Do you think you'd use it? I don't know. You know, it's interesting because if I had a terminal illness and I had six months left to live and was in severe pain and all these other issues, I'd want to have the choice. And I probably want to use it. I mean, I think just giving the option, making it available is something that is worthwhile in and of itself. Thank you, Margaret, for taking your vacation time. I wish you could be here again because maybe you'll come back. You said you've been here a bunch. Come on back so we can talk about this again. I know there's a lot of people who wanted to get through. We didn't have a chance to talk to everybody, but I promise we're going to cover this topic again just to hear everyone's opinion and perspective. So thank you again for taking your time. Margaret Carley, she is a nurse and an attorney in Oregon here on vacation. Thanks for being on. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Bethany Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You can find us on Facebook, hawaiipublicradio.org. We'll see you again next Monday. Thanks for joining.